I am Charlotte Kassaragi, and in partnership with the House of Chanel, I present to you the Les Rencontres podcast. As part of the Rendezvous Littéraire at Rue Cambon, this podcast spotlights the birth of a female writer. You can listen to the various episodes and their authors on your preferred streaming platforms. Happy Saturday. It's October 22nd, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Ashley, welcome to Saturday. It is a busy, crazy week in the world, starting over there on your side of the pond. I'm left speechless. I know. It's so crazy. Linda Wells just wrote me an email basically blaming me for all of this. She said, you show up, the queen dies, Liz trusts, self-immolates, the pound sinks, and Harry Styles becomes persona non grata. What is going on? I blame myself, as always. It's really ins- I don't even know. What a fascinating time to live here as a journalist. Everybody talks to me about how dismal and terrible it is here in the UK. But I have to say, from a news perspective, it's fascinating because it's just constantly unfolding. So much change. It's like you're witnessing a country in the midst of a tremendous period of upheaval. Anyway, it's awful for the UK, but as a journalist, it is fascinating to watch. Yeah, and we've got a great show. We've got Stuart Heritage coming on very soon to talk about the drama around Liz Truss and her resignation this week. We also have Cullen Murphy on the 50th anniversary of an environmental bestseller that changed how we think about Earth. And finally, we have a real treat. Hugh Bonneville, the actor, you may know him best as Robert Crawley in Downton Abbey. He'll be joining us to talk about his very funny and moving new memoir, Playing Under the Piano. But it's a great show. Actually, where do you want to begin? Well, I think we have to start with the elephant in the room or the prime minister on the outs, which is to say Liz Truss. I mean, what a shocking week it's been. It's funny. My neighbors, we've all had money bet on how long Liz was going to last. I lost. I thought she'd be up by Wednesday, but my neighbor who thought she'd be out by Thursday, ended up winning. Congratulations. It's a crazy time, I have to say. And we got to get Stu Heritage on to tell us all about it. Stu is a writer at large for Airmail. He covers UK politics for us. And he also regularly contributes to The Guardian. And he lives in Kent. And we are so happy to have him here. Welcome back, Stu. Stu, we should say, first of all, we are recording this on Thursday afternoon. Things could change imminently. Where are we at right now with good old Liz? Oh, she's toast. She's gone. Literally 45 minutes ago at the time of recording, she stuck a little platform outside of 10 Downing Street and announced that she was gone. 45 days. She's lasted 45 days. By some distance, the shortest serving prime minister that the UK has ever had. That's quite a record, really. Who was the second shortest serving prime minister? (laughs) (laughs) The second shortest was George Canning, who was prime minister briefly in 1827. He died of tuberculosis while he was in office, which is a good reason to leave, I think. Stu, should we even talk about Liz Truss, given that she's out? No, I think we should. I think we should. We should commemorate her. She's a pub quiz question now. She's the answer to a pub quiz question 20 years from now. That's all she is. (laughs) Okay. Well, she was the least popular PM in British history. And why do you think she was so profoundly disliked? I mean, she had a lot of missteps, but what caused the death knell for her? It's so many, so many missteps. I'm wildly rewriting the Saturday's article as we speak, because everything needs to be past tense now. And I'm just trying to list every Everything that she did wrong. It started, I mean, her first act as prime minister, when you become prime minister, is to meet the monarch. And she did that and she shook the queen's hand and then the queen almost instantly died. She pretty much, Liz Truss barely was able to leave the room before she died. And then came an emergency budget, which was supposed to set the country back on a path towards growth. But that went 
very badly. And rather than sort of provoking the growth that she was thinking of, the, the pound crashed to its lowest value versus the dollar. The Bank of England had to intervene. The IMF had to intervene. Everything kind of cratered immediately. And I think from that point onward, people might have realized that she maybe wasn't the woman for the job. Okay, so Stu, obvious question, who's going to replace her? It should be easy. And we'll know this time next week, we'll know because in her resignation speech, Trust said that the whole leadership decision would be made within a week. The last I heard, Conservative MPs are looking to find like a unity candidate, someone they can all agree on that can just waltz in and have a big mandate of the entire party. But the problem with that is that apparently that the Conservatives just cannot agree on anything. But I mean, by the time someone might be chosen, by the time by the time this podcast is out, but it might be Penny Mordaunt, who came third in the leadership competition. It might be Jeremy Hunt, who is the current Chancellor of the Exchequer and has been for less than a week. <laughs> again, might not be by Saturday. But he, again, he's very unpopular. In the leadership competition, there were eight candidates. He came eighth and was the first to duck out. You would think possibly Rishi Sunak, because he's been economically, everything that he said would happen has happened. But I, I still feel like he's still seen as the disloyal figure who threw Boris off his own. And I mean, that's the other choice. It might be Boris Johnson. He might come back. I can't see it happening. The former culture secretary, Nadine Doris, is very, very loyal to Boris Johnson. And she's pushing hard for him to return, like King Arthur or Jesus or something. But for the Conservative Party to accept him back would mean that they would have to forget that enormous flurry of no confidence letters that was sent, I guess, two months ago that got him sent away. And that would be such a big U-turn. I don't think I don't think it would convince the public of anything, really. So the short answer is I have no idea who's going to be the next prime minister. Well, you're not alone in that sentiment, Stu. But you know who it is a good week for? Sir Keir Starmer. Tell us about the leader of the Labour Party, where this all finds him, where they're at in the polls and what the future of Labour is looking like. Well, Labour have the largest lead of any party since modern polling began at the moment. It's partly because I think they're doing a good job of being an opposition party, but it's more of just a reflection of how badly the last few weeks have been going. I think if he, he could have just been a tortoise on a stick or something and he would still be the most popular candidate to be next prime minister. Stu, it's always easy to have hindsight 20 as you note, Liz Truss never seemed to be comfortable in public. In fact, she would, her staff would make up excuses of people dying, right? Yes, yes, this came out. It seems like such a weird little footnote. But yes, well, Wednesday, I guess, there was a clip of a podcast, a Westminster podcast came out featuring one of her former aides who said that Liz Truss was so reluctant to appear in the media, specifically on Question Time, which is a BBC political show, that her team would make up deaths in the family to try and to try and get her out of it, just fake bereavements. And yet, can you just tell us a little bit about maybe we should have seen this coming as well with a certain necklace that she seems to sport in public? <laughs> yeah. Tell us about this. So one of her, her trademark accessory is a metal hoop. A sort of quite a big hoop on a chain. And a lot of news outlets and websites said that it looks like a ring of O, which is something that BDSM practitioners wear to signal that they're part of the community. Do we need to explain BDSM for our listeners at home? I don't think we do. <laughs> Ashley's ready to jump in there. Family show, Michael. Family show. Okay. <laughs> it makes you wonder. She's lasted, even though she's been only been prime minister for 45 days, 
the amount of pain that she willingly inflicted on herself, it proves the theory. It must be. And inflicted on the country. Oh, gosh, yeah. And totally inflicted on everyone. My poor old dad is just very happy with himself. He's bought a woolly, thermal, all-in-one Arctic suit that he can wear so he doesn't have to use central heating in the winter. That's, that's how bad things are. Stu, one other question for all the levity and someone of like Liz's demise. Are people in the UK freaking out or is it sort of like stiff upper lip business as usual, but beneath it, like, are people worried? I think people are worried. I think the Conservative Party is always, it calls itself, it's the party of government. If this was Game of Thrones, they would be the Lannisters. They're the people born into power. And especially economically, they're supposed to be the people that you can trust. And I think by whipping through so much chaos, so quickly, everyone is sort of thrown by it. It is a big, even just among the few people I've seen over the past few days, it's been a big sort of topic of conversation. Nobody knows what's next. There's all this sort of instability. It reminds me a little from a distance, and obviously you'll know better than I do about this, of sort of late stage Trump era, where just everything, it just seems like there are no rules. Things are happening in the morning and they're forgotten about by the afternoon. It's really difficult to live with that sort of instability. Stu, if you had to put money on it, if you were a betting man, we just need a name. Who do you think it's going to be? Okay. All right. Well, I mean, this is instantly going to prove me wrong by the time the the podcast comes out, because by this afternoon they'll say, but I will say Penny Morden. All right. We'll take it. And I apologize for being incorrect. All right, Stu, thank you so much for your great column and for speaking with us as you are on deadline. And we look forward to the next. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, this is the story that keeps on giving, Michael. No doubt we'll have Stu back on again to tell us everything we need to know again next week. This is like it's a super mashup between Game of Thrones and Succession and House of Cards. It's just as like, and this is the best show going right now, maybe. And I'm not saying that sort of laughingly. We've got elections coming up here in the U.S. in the next couple of weeks, which I'm sure is going to provide our own sense of drama. But in the meantime, we've got watching it all unfold in London. Yes, indeed. That's all we do on this show, Michael. Follow the dysfunction. This week, it's the UK. Next week, we'll be back home in the US. And meanwhile, Putin is still going completely insane over there in Russia. So what a bizarre time we live in. Let's get Colin Murphy on here to talk about the latest environmental brouhaha. Yeah, this is a good story this week, a column by Colin about the 50th anniversary of the release of a environmental report called Limits to Growth. Colin is an editor-at-large for The Atlantic, and he's the author of several very good books, including God's Jury, The Inquisition in the Making of the Modern World, as well as Cartoon County, My Father and His Friends in the Golden Age of Make-Believe. Welcome, Colin. Okay, Colin, half a century ago, an organization called the Club of Rome published an explosive report called Limits to Growth. Before we get too much into the report, let's talk about the Club of Rome and what exactly it was and why these types of organizations are so easy to make fun of, as you say in your story. Well, the Club of Rome was founded in 1968 by a group of well-meaning industrialists, scholars, scientists, bankers, And it was an attempt to look at the world's problems in their totality. To use the language of the time, they called it the predicament of mankind. And that is certainly a worthy goal. It was founded in Rome because one of the key members was active there. It was founded at the headquarters of an organization called the Academy of the Lincei, which is the Academy of the Lynxes. And that was a group that was started during the Renaissance. One of its members was Galileo, and it was devoted to science and human improvement. And the first big project is the one that came to be called the Limits 
to growth. So Colin, tell us what is Limits to Growth and why even now it came out in 1972, but 50 years later, it still is as powerful and urgent as it was then. The Limits to Growth idea grew out of what had been mounting concerns among people from many spheres over what was happening to the planet. To put it in its starkest terms, were we outstripping the capacity of the planet to supply us? Was population growing too quickly? Were resources being used up too fast? And all of this, of course, occurs in the context growing concern about the environment in general leaving aside the question of population per se or resources per se, but what were we doing to the planet as ecosystem? And of course, concern about this had been growing for some years. You had Silent Spring, published by Rachel Carson in the early 1960s. You had explosive books, almost scientific potboilers like Paul Ehrlich's The The Population Bomb. So there was an environment in which limits to growth appeared that was kind of ready-made for a serious effort to look at population and resource questions. One of the reasons that the limits to growth had such impact was because of the way in which it went about doing business in terms of scientific analysis. The authors of the report were very conscious of the fact that it was very easy to look at the world's problems in isolation. You look at oil, you look at certain kinds of disease, you look at erosion and so on. But the authors had a different view of things. They wanted to attempt to look holistically at the world's issues, its problems, its opportunities, so as to get a better grasp of how problems interrelate and therefore how solutions have to be interrelated. Now, the other question had to do with its enduring impact. The Limits to Growth had no sooner appeared than it attracted a lot of criticism. This is one of those issues, when you think of the match between population and resources, everybody has a dog in the fight. There were many scholarly and public fights over the Limits to Growth. There were those who just didn't want to hear the message that there are limits to growth. There were those who were adamant that the planet was facing a problem. And the fact is that the nature of the debate that was joined in 1972 when the limits to growth came out has in many ways not changed. If you ask the big questions that the report is asking, first of all, do we need to be looking at the the world's problems in a holistic manner rather than as discrete problems that are affecting this place or that place or this disease or this resource, but rather trying to grasp the planet in its totality. Well, sure, we do need to be doing that. And the need for doing it is just as urgent as it ever was. That's one thing. But a second thing is that even though various scenarios that limit that the limits to growth scholars presented have not turned out exactly the way they anticipated, there are many things that they thought we would have run out of by now that we have not run out of by now. There are other areas where the problems seem worse than they might have anticipated. And one of those has to do with atmospheric pollution, which is the mega problem that the planet is wrestling with now. So in many ways, the environment, both scientific and popular, in which the limits to growth first appeared has an analog in the times that we are living in right now. 
Well, Colin, thank you so much. First of all, for all this context, I mean, it's such a fascinating report that I think to many was well-known, but to others, especially the next generation, it sort of got lost in the shuffle. So we appreciate you bringing it to light and reminding us of why it mattered. Well, thank you. On a lighter note regarding the planet, Ashley. Mm, Yes. Because we could use one. We've got a pretty crazy story this week by Charlie Gowans Eglinton, and it is about the Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop Cruise, which is now underway on a ship that's worth a billion dollars. Pretty fascinating. Do you have any desire to go on this cruise? Do you know me? I know you. I know you as as a human being, you wouldn't wouldn't go near it. But as a journalist who likes to watch car crashes, you probably would. But no, this sounds like the worst idea ever. Because at the end of the day, with everything in the Goop universe, they're just trying to sell you stuff. Hey, we're Americans. We are capitalists. Go for it. Gwyneth, if that's what you've got to do, go for it. But I think you have to keep that in mind when consuming all of these products, especially in the wellness universe. Because at the end of the day, is that $42 collagen supplement really going to change your life? or is it just going to line the pockets of the person making it? Sorry to be such a doomsdayer, Michael, but I don't always tend to believe that these sorts of enlightenment and personal growth and everything that these places promise actually ever comes to fruition. Yeah, well, Gwyneth alights on the ship fresh from her 50th birthday party in Umbria, and she's there to sort of preach to her minions. And yet this sort of thing, that he's like, you're exactly right, there are all these experts are called in and to sort of give their own little spiel. I think the reason that she's so popular is because that everything else in the universe seems so absurd in a bad way that this seems absurd in a relatively innocuous way and that's why we're drawn to it. But if you were to take her out of this period in time and put her 20 years ago or 20 years in the future, I really don't think anybody would care. Do you think Liz Truss could go on a goop cruise and like, she seems like she would be the kind of person going on a goop cruise? Mm. I think she kind of likes to party. I see her more as like throwing back a couple of pints at the pub and like getting together with Kwame and like talking about old times. And I don't really see her as the type, but you never know. She just seems too practical for all that. Speaking of people who are going to have a larger footnote in the drama of Great Britain, we have Hugh Bonneville on here. Hugh is an English actor who is best known for his portrayal as Robert Crawley, the Earl of Grantham in the ITV series Downton Abbey. He was nominated for Golden Globe. He was nominated for Primetime Emmys and Screen Actors Guild Awards. He also appeared in my favorite movie, Notting Hill, Iris, The Monuments Men, and all the Paddington movies. But additionally, not only is he an incredible actor, but he also read theology at Cambridge. He then studied acting. He is an incredible writer, it turns out. And we see that now with the publication of his beautiful memoir. It is called Playing Under the Piano from Downton to Darkest Peru. Welcome, Hugh Bonneville. Hugh Bonneville, you've been holding out on us, okay? We know you as a brilliant actor. We love everything you've ever done in that front. And it turns out you're also a brilliant writer. What inspired you to do this memoir and why have you been holding out on us for so long? (laughs) You're too kind, too kind. I think really, well, having been badgered by a publisher for a long time who said, why not write an autobiography? And I said, no, that's far too much like hard work. They have to be accurate as well. And I've got a foggy memory. So he said, well, I'll do a string some anecdotes together. And then actually, as I sat down to write, I found myself weirdly, my unconscious took over and I started writing about my dad who was on the dementia journey, just as much as I was writing about working with funny bears and funny dowager countesses. So it's a whole amalgam, it's a whole hotchpotch, but I suppose I just wanted to get it down for before my own memory fogs, frankly. It sounds a bit of a downer. It's quite a fun book. I, I was going to say, <laughs> you're completely mis-selling it here. I mean, it's really hilarious. And I love, you start off with tales of the theater world and the world of television and the world of Downton Abbey, which is, of course, is how you became known to billions of people around the world. But were you hesitant to talk about these interior workings of the industry or did you feel comfortable? I guess, why did you decide to go there? Well, I think 
because I'm not out to diss anyone. I mean, also contractually, I'm not allowed to from here to eternity. You have to be nice about everyone, as far as I can make out, in every contract. So there was no harm of me trying to slaughter anyone. But also, to be honest, I have had a remarkably blessed 35 years or so in the business, and I have worked with some remarkably talented and generous people. And so to share a few stories about either watching them from the wings when I was at the National Theatre, watching Anthony Hopkins and Judy Dench, for example, or indeed working with some of those greats along the way, and just to share some insights of A, that they're normal people, and B, their talent, they wear very lightly, and it's a privilege to be around them most of the time. I just was waiting for you to diss more on Paddington. He's supposed to be a monster on set, but... Well, the issue with him is the marmalade habit, and you can't look him in the eye before noon, all those sorts of things, and he rarely comes out of his trailer, so you have to have lots of stand-ins and doubles and stunt doubles and marmalade doubles, but... So the rumours are true. The (laughs) the rumours are true, and he doesn't wear lifts. For our listeners who haven't read the book yet, and they all should go out and buy it right away, how did Downton Abbey change things for you? People have come up to me recently and said, oh, you must have been so relieved when Downton Abbey came along, like I hadn't been working for 25 years before it. It certainly changed things in terms of doors opening, I guess. I've never met a bear called Paddington, I don't think, without Downton Abbey. I probably wouldn't have met George Clooney without the bear. So I'm enormously conscious that it's shifted things up a gear or two in terms of accessibility. And equally, I can remember when I did Notting Hill, had a lovely supporting part in that. But the doors that opened after that, it's a very strange thing. You realise you're just a commodity, frankly, and any talent you have was just as present before the movie opened as as afterwards. But your just marketability changes. And that was certainly true of Downton. And I'm not dissing Downton by any means. I loved it and I love it still. But yes, the opportunities afforded by it for us all, all of us all around the world, just shifted. Are there any commonalities between playing this landed gentry man on Downton Abbey and what you bring to your roles when you play a villain that always scares the crap out of me. (laughs) I mean, is there a central thread commonality besides those icy blue eyes that are looking at us? I think, well, if you're referring to I Came By, which is currently on Netflix, folks, I think they're just very house-proud people. They're both trying to keep run a tidy home. One Mm -hmm. has a particularly interesting basement and the other keeps wine in his. So, I mean... Of course, there are just. It, it was fun to just come out of a completely different box and not walk around with a Labrador who doesn't want to be there. Instead, just invite people to come and look at your ceramics in the cellar. What was your process like in writing this book? It was, I mean, every writer I speak to says, you just got to sit down every day and do it. And I'm a great procrastinator. And I procrastinated for, frankly, several years. And I'd write a, a few chunks here and there. And, and this very persistent and patient agent would ring up every six months or so and say, any more stuff? I'd say, oh, yeah, it's coming. It's coming eventually. But it was my my son, who last year went travelling around Europe with a pal, and he peeled off for a week. He said, I'm just going to go and rent a little hut in the woods and just do some writing. I thought, interesting. And then sure enough, on the first night that he was there, he sent me a photograph of his word count and said, I've written 4,000 words today, Dad. How many words have you written? And that shamed me into it because it had become a family joke, frankly, that I was never going to write this darn thing. And so the next day I rang rang the agent. I said, "Okay, I do need a deadline and I do need to have an incentive just to get on with it because my son is embarrassing me. One of the parts of your childhood is most sort of surprising for me, and it seems as it was in the book, is... What you learned about your mother. What if you could just tell us about 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 her alternate life? Well, mum, when I was about 10, mum said, I'm going to go and work in an office in, in London three days a week. So, of course, I started slamming doors and crying and saying, how dare you leave me? Why wouldn't you be here at the end of my school day? It's irresponsible and selfish. So she did for several years go off and work in this office. And when I, in the vacations, when I was going on my dad's hospital rounds, I'd jump in the car with them and drop her off. And cut to many years later after she'd retired. And I opened the evening paper one day and 
it said Secret Service building to be sold, MI6. And I rang her up and I said, hang on, was your office called Century House in the middle of South London? And she said, yes. And I said, but that's MI6. She said, yes, dear. And I said, you were a spy. And she said, no, no, I did filing. I said, no, you weren't, you were a spy. How cool, my mum's a spy. Anyway, she'd said no more about it. And then when she passed, MI6 let it be known that she, it could be said in, her, in the eulogy that she'd worked there. And I mentioned all this on a radio show here in the UK after she died. And a few days later, I got a phone call from MI6. And they said, look, we're doing these talks at lunchtime with people from the outside world, the normal world. Would you like to come in and just talk about people who've influenced you along the way and so forth? And so I did, and I went, it was a really surreal day. It was lovely. I just went in in this lecture theatre and there were all these boys and girls with their little sandwich boxes and their thermos flasks of coffee and doing the crosswords. And I was just talking to them about people who'd inspired me. And then a guy came up to me and said, I worked with your mum. And this, of course, was a complete bolt from the blue. She'd passed now, and she hadn't worked there for 20 years. And this chap who was a bit younger than me, I said, gosh, where did he work? He said, well, we worked in this section over in one part of the building, and I was a junior, and, and we'd hear these footsteps on the linoleum floor coming, and we'd say, quick, there's Pat, there's Pat, quick, look, you know, jump to it, jump to it. And we'd all pretend that we were working really hard. And, and what was strangest for me was I knew the sound of the footsteps. It was the memory of the echo of her feet when she was walking with a purpose. I knew she went into this double-time <laughs> walk. And I suddenly felt very connected to this man in a rather strange way that the memory of a sound had brought us together. And I remember saying, well, yeah, she said she did filing. And I know she wasn't a spy. And he said, well, yeah, filing, yeah, sort of. It was fairly high-level intercepts that she was sorting out. We were all having to make sure they were in the right place in case upstairs wanted a copy of what's happening in this country or that country or with these assets. So she went, obviously went to her grave, like all people who work in that service, with her lips sealed. And I was enormously proud of her sense of service and duty and, of course, forgave her for working three days a week. You write about your father so poignantly. Tell us a little bit about what he was like. And My father was a very jolly man. He had what you might call a twinkle in his eye, but not in a sort of creepy way. He was just a, a good-spirited man. He was a surgeon, a urologist. Oh, I work in waterworks, you see. That's what he used to say. And clearly saved and changed and helped lives. But he did it with a very dear modesty. His big love, though, was playing the piano in his spare time. And as the dementia fog rolled in, it was the piano that still that lasted the longest, let's put it that way. And it is extraordinary, the human brain and what music can achieve in even the darkest of darkest of times. And that, that area of his brain was alive and alert. And that when other things were failing or fading, that was still bright. And I used to love sitting outside his living room door where the, his little baby grand piano was in his last apartment and just listening. To, I could just listen for hours because that's when he was most present. Hugh, thank you so much for joining us. His memoir is called Playing Under the Piano from Downton to Darkest Peru. Hugh Bonneville, we do hope you have another literary project coming because you're such a wonderful writer. If you ever want to write for Airmail, just give us a call. Oh, you're very kind. Thank you. Lovely <laughs> to talk to you both. Thanks for being here, Hugh. Take Thank care. you, Hugh. Bye-bye. Who was your favorite character in Downton Abbey? Lady Mary, obviously. No, maybe Sybil. No, maybe Mrs. Bates. No, Mr. Bates. I don't know, Michael. That's like asking me to choose a favorite child. Before we go off into that weekend, do you have anything at all you could recommend? I do. It comes courtesy of John Lahr, who is one of our contributors here at Airmail. And he was the first critic to win a Tony Award for co-authoring the Elaine Stritch at Liberty. But he's got a new book out. And if you've been a fan of the movie Blonde, where Ana de Armas plays Marilyn Monroe, co-stars Adrian Brody as well, John has a new book out called Arthur Miller, American Witness. It's from Yale University Press. And it's a terrific book. 
if you love theater and movies and the stories behind these people. But the sort of one of the bombshells he's got in there and one of the great big details he has is a newly discovered letter by Arthur Miller about his young bride, Marilyn Monroe, that reveals Miller's rookie mistake. He married a bombshell blonde he literally never knew. And this is a letter that was shared with Lar by Miller's nephew, Ross Miller, who is a university professor. And in it, Miller's writing home to his parents in 1956, the year after he's met Monroe. And he's revealing that he barely had like three or four dates with her. And all of a sudden, they're madly in love. And as Miller writes, he praises Monroe saying she has more courage, more intimate decency, more sensitivity and love for humanity than anyone I've ever known in my life. But he also then sort of says, as he starts to see her life in show business, he refers to her as a smashed vase. It is a beautiful thing when it is intact, but the broken pieces are murderous and they could cut. It's a terrific book. I recommend it all if you're looking for a little more context around the Marilyn Monroe movie or other pieces of pop culture. And you, Ashley? Well, I've spent most of this morning toggling between an incredible new documentary called Meet Me in the Bathroom and the BBC News on Liz Trust. But this documentary is incredible. It's coming out in November on Showtime. So I saw a screener. It's not available quite yet, but don't forget it. Put it in your queue. It is a documentary adaptation of Lizzie Goodman's oral history about the rock music scene in New York around the time of 9-11. We're talking about the Strokes. We're talking about Interpol. We're talking about LCD Sound System, the Yayayas, the Moldy Peaches, that whole crew. And it, Many of us read and loved Lizzie's book. I think the documentary is in some ways even more compelling because the directors, Dylan Southern and Will Loveless, are working with a very rich archive, not only of sort of shot-on-the-fly film of all of these people, but also footage from their earliest concerts in New York City in the late 90s and early 2000s. For those of us who live through this time, it is a really fun trip down memory lane, and it will take you back to that period that was so visceral and so creative in New York City when it really felt like a, a moment and a movement was happening. And and I cannot tell you how much I enjoyed it. So it is called Meet Me in the Bathroom, coming soon to Showtime, based on Lizzie Goodman's book. And you can definitely pick up Lizzie's book now if you've not read that yet, because it is also a classic. That's all I got, baby. Well, I will not meet you in the bathroom, Ashley. I'll just hope to meet you in London one of these days very soon. I'm ready for you. On that note, Michael, please read us out. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julie Vitale. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music, but most of all, thank you again for joining us.